I have been rereading through Hudson Taylor's Spiritual Secret. Has anyone read that book? Show of hands. No? All right. Well, you know, we just put a whole stack of them out on the Bookshelf Resource Center, so you can go check that out. Uh, but it's it's the account of Hudson Taylor's life and ministry written by uh, his son and daughter-in-law. And if you don't know who Hudson Taylor was, he was a British Christian missionary who God used to start uh, the China Inland Mission. It's this mission organization that's just reached thousands of people for Christ in inland China. And, uh, and, and I was reading this past week about the story uh, of a conversion of a man named Ni. Nee, and I just wanted to, to read this little excerpt from the book to get us started today. It says this, Ni was a Buddhist leader who was a cotton merchant. He was deeply earnest and as president of an idolatrous society, spent much of his time and money in the service of the gods, but his heart was not at rest. And the more he followed his round of religious observances, the more empty he found them to be. Passing an open door on the street one evening, he noticed that something was going on. A bell was being rung and people were assembling as if for a meeting. Learning that it was a hall for the discussion of religious matters, he too went in, for there was nothing about which he was more concerned than the penalties due sin and the transmigration of the soul on its unknown way. A young foreigner in Chinese dress was preaching from his sacred classics. He was at home in the Ningpo dialect, and Mr. Ni could understand every word of the passage he read. But what could its meaning be? As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might live through him and be saved. Saved, not condemned, a way to find everlasting life, a God who loved the world, a serpent, no, a son of man lifted up. What could it all be about? To say that Ni was interested scarcely begins to express what went on in his mind. The story of the brazen serpent in the wilderness illustrating the divine remedy for sin and its deadly consequences, the life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, the bearing of all upon his own needs brought home to him in the power of the Spirit. Well, it is the miracle of the ages, and thank God we see it still. I, if I be lifted up, will draw all men unto me. But the meeting was coming to a close. The foreign teacher had ceased speaking. With the instinct of one accustomed to leading in such a matter, Ni rose in his place and looked around at the audience and said with simple directness, I have long sought the truth, but without finding it. I have traveled far and near, but have never searched it out. In Confucianism, in Buddhism, in Taoism, I have found no rest, but I find rest in what we have heard tonight. Henceforth, I am a believer in Jesus. An incredible story of God drawing one unto himself. And really this story of Nee illustrates the reality that human beings, a human soul is longing to find a place of peace, is longing to know truth, is longing to know what this life is all about and where hope can be found. Nee was a very spiritual man, but his dead religion was leaving him restless until he heard of the living Christ, where he finally came to the truth. 
My question for us this morning is, do you have peace in your soul? Do you really have peace in your soul? When you sit back and think about your life, are you you able to take a deep breath and say, yes, ultimately I am at peace. And if you're not at peace, do you know how to continue to go to the well of peace where you will find it? My heart and my hope today is that by the end of our time in God's word, we would all know the peace of God with certainty and we would all draw near the one who can give us peace on an ongoing basis. So we're on our journey to the cross. We're marching through the last few chapters of the Gospel of Luke. If you have your Bibles, you can make your way to Luke 19. But last week we looked at the first half of Luke 19 and saw this awesome interaction between Jesus and a man named Zacchaeus. And we learned from the interaction that uh, when, when we are seeing Jesus rightly, we are willing to do anything to seek and serve him joyfully. Zacchaeus got a glimpse of Jesus And then joyfully sought and served him once he knew and found salvation in this man. And ultimately our goal as we are quickly approaching Easter is for all of us to see Jesus for who he really is. And to then make him central to our lives. Because really the only abundant or fruitful Christian life will be an outflow of us seeing Jesus rightly for who he is and what he has done for us, And if you have your note sheet in front of you, you have the main point for this week. That is uh, saying, staying on the same vein that we are, when we are seeing Jesus rightly, we will honor him as king and pursue his peace. And that's what we're going to look at in our passage today. And so, again, Jesus is traveling with his disciples. They are on their way to Jerusalem. They have just passed through Jericho where they have the interaction with Zacchaeus. And now Jesus is his eyes set on the city through which he will go, ultimately be betrayed, tried, and crucified. But as we look at our passage today, I think something we need to realize is the grandness of what is being accomplished. The reality that we are reading the fulfillment of something God promised to us all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. Jesus coming as the rescuer is the fulfillment of Genesis 3.15 and the promise that God would send a savior to redeem his people. This is the culmination of what the Bible has been building up to. And here we are, Jesus, the King, the King of Kings, entering into his rightful kingdom. And we read Luke 19, starting in verse 29. It says, When he drew near Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who went uh, went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives. The whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and to praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, 
Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But he said, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. If you traveled to Israel today, you could go to the spot where this happened. Both the Catholic Church and the Eastern Orthodox Church have buildings in Bethphage that are uh, really set to be memorials for what is Palm Sunday. And uh, I, I don't have the calendar wrong. To, I know that Sunday today is not Palm Sunday. So just be at peace if you're like, why are we teaching Palm Sunday before Palm Sunday? That's just where we're going through the text. So we'll be okay. Um, but here we are, Palm Sunday, this incredible event. And it starts with Jesus passing to and coming to these two villages uh, on the Mount of Olives. And Jesus starts by sending two disciples on ahead to get a donkey. Now, I try to put myself in the shoes of these disciples. And it's like, hey, go into the town ahead of us. Go, You're going to find a donkey and just bring it here. You're like, okay. <laughs> but I think the disciples at this point in time, they've, they've seen enough to know that this would elicit some curiosity in them, right? It's like, Okay, Jesus has done so many crazy things. This is like really low on the bar of crazy. So I'm just, we're just let's just go look. There's going to be a donkey. We're going to find it. Jesus wants it. It'll all work out. It'll be fine. So again, I think they're they're anticipating what is going to happen here. And a couple key observations I just want to make from this passage. The first of which is that Jesus is very intentionally and purposefully preparing to ride into Jerusalem on this colt. This isn't just uh um, just a, a random thing that Jesus is doing. Jesus is actually fulfilling the prophecy in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. We read it last week, but it's a prophecy that said this, Rejoice greatly, O daughters of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the fowl of a donkey. So this was written approximately 500 years before this event is taking place, foretelling the coming king who would bring salvation with him. And this king is going to come into town humbly riding on a donkey. Now, for us, uh, we don't have the same context that they would have had when thinking of a donkey. But for them, a donkey was a symbol of peace. And in ancient Middle Eastern worlds, leaders would ride into town on horses during times of war. They would ride their war horses as, as, as we're conquering, we're going to battle. But whenever a king would come into town on a donkey, it was a symbol of peace. They, they, were, they were enjoying a season of peace. And back in 1 Kings one thirty three, it mentions that Solomon, when he was officially knighted as king, rode on a donkey. And Solomon's reign is widely known as a reign of peace for the people of Israel. So the donkey is this symbol of peace. And so we have a prophecy about this king who will bring peace with him, riding on to town on an animal that's a symbol of peace. Are we starting to see a bit of a theme here? Peace is a huge theme all throughout our passage today. But the second observation I want to make from the text is this is the very first time Jesus refers to himself as the Lord. 
And maybe you caught that, maybe you didn't. It's kind of subtle, but uh, it really is this declaration of Jesus's identity. And this is the first time he ascribes this to himself. When he says, if, if the owner says, what are you doing? Say, the Lord needs it. And this term, Lord, really is uh, ex- this expression of sovereignty. It's this reality that Jesus is saying, hey, I control my own destiny. I'm going to control the beast on which I ride into town on. It's going to happen just how I say it's going to happen. Even if this city is eventually going to reject and crucify me, I know that that's coming. I'm Lord over all of this. This is my plan. And so we see verse 32 and 35. The disciples go and they they obey the words of Jesus. They find the colt. They're questioned by the owner. They repeat his words. And that's enough for the owner to say, fine, I guess the Lord needs it. Let it go. And they bring this colt to Jesus. He mounts on top of it. And he starts heading down the Mount of Olives. And we see verse 36. It says, he went along and the people began to spread their cloaks on the ground. Now, in the Gospel of John, we also learn that the people were laying down palm branches on the ground before him. Both of these things are ancient rituals and symbolic of welcoming a king into town. The idea of throwing your cloak down on the ground is really an act of submission. It's a submission to the king that, that, that I am under your authority. And the palm branches were these symbols of goodness, of well-being, of grandeur, and of victory. And so in verse 37, it tells us that the multitude of disciples are beginning to rejoice and praise God with loud voices. So both in their words and their actions, they are declaring that Jesus is king. They're acknowledging who the rightful king is. Verse 38, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And if you're familiar with the book of Luke, it starts with some very similar language at the birth of Jesus. As the angels are announcing the birth of Christ, they say, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace. Now the people are affirming the words of the angels that started this gospel Account, But nevertheless, there is no question about it. At this moment in time, the crowd is believing and declaring that Jesus is the coming king and they are honoring him. They are honoring him with their actions. They are honoring him with their praise. But again, as we looked at last week, they believe that Jesus is going to take the throne now. They believe that Jesus is going to overthrow the present Roman occupation of Jerusalem and be enthroned on, uh, on the kingdom of Israel where they will reign again as a powerful, prosperous people. This is what they're anticipating. And they were wrong in the way in which the kingdom was going to come, but they were right in doing what they did in honoring Jesus as the rightful king as he entered into his rightful kingdom. And as we see all throughout the gospel accounts, the religious leaders don't like what's going on. And they want Jesus to stop this parade. In verse 39, they say, teacher, rebuke your disciples. In other words, Jesus, stop this nonsense. How are you letting this happen? This is, this is out of control. You see, the people were praising Jesus as if he was God. 
And the religious leaders are looking upon this and they're thinking to themselves, that's blasphemy. How in the world can you receive the praise that alone is due to God? But Jesus rebukes them in verse 40 and he replies, I tell you, if these, meaning the people, were silent, the very stones would cry out. See these rocks on the ground? They would cry out my praise if the people didn't. Jesus is actually quoting Habakkuk 2.11. And back in Habakkuk, uh, the stones are really used as a witness against the evil deeds of Babylon. So Babylon was a world power who had conquered Israel at the time. And Babylon really built their empire upon the plundered stones of the nations. They just went and conquered and then took whatever that nation had to build their own empire. And so in Habakkuk, the stones were a witness against the violence of this quest for power of Babylon. But here in our passage today, Jesus is telling the Pharisees, he's saying, hey, listen, guys, these stones that have seen all things for all times, they know who I am. And if these people don't honor me, if these people don't give me praise, the stones will, because they they know they were with me in the beginning when I spoke them into existence. And so Jesus lets the people honor him as king. The, he lets the people praise them, and the Pharisees are not happy about it. So this passage starts off with the crowd rightly honoring Jesus as the rightful king. Let's keep reading verse 41. It says, when he drew near and saw the city, that is Jerusalem, he wept over it. He wept over it, saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. There it is again. But now they are hidden from you. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up barricades around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground. You and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you. Because you did not know the time of your visitation. So here's Jesus. We've already established the king of peace. Riding in on an animal of peace. And he's drawing near what has been called the city of peace. The name Jerusalem in and of itself has been translated by many to mean the fountain of peace. The place from which peace will come and overflow to all nations of the world. And here is Jesus, upon getting a glimpse of this great city, weeping. He's weeping. And he says, would that you would have known on this day the things that make for peace. Jesus is grieved because the people that should have recognized him... The first people that should have acknowledged him as the Messiah and the rightful king. The first people who should have discerned the plan of salvation that was coming to Israel that would be for all nations. They're not getting it. They're not seeing him. Ultimately, they don't want him to be the king. And the consequence for their ignorance to what should have been obvious to them says is that this place is going to be destroyed. Jerusalem is going to be decimated. And if you know your history, approximately 40 years later, the destruction of Jerusalem happened. 
in 70 AD by the hands of the Romans. There was this uh, Jewish uprising, this Jewish rebellion, revolt against the Roman power and control, and the Romans seized the city. They surrounded the city so that goods could not go in or out. It was a, it was a horrific time in history. There was terrible suffering in the city of Jerusalem. And they came and they crushed it. And they tore the temple down. And Jesus is telling us that this is going to happen. And he's telling us why it's going to happen. At the end of verse 44, it says very plainly, because you did not know the time of your visitation. You didn't know. You should have perceived this. I've made it obvious to you in so many ways and you didn't know. And while this crowd, for the most part, is honoring Jesus right now as the rightful king, we know five days later that some in the same crowd are going to be yelling the words, Crucify Him! Crucify Him! But what I love and, and what we get insight into the heart of God on this passage is that Jesus isn't angry in this moment. Jesus is broken. Jesus is weeping. Like a loving parent who sees their child making foolish decisions that know will lead to their own demise. That's what's happening in this passage. Jesus is saying, I don't want this for you. But I also can't stop you from being foolish. And he's broken. Can you imagine the disciples in that moment? Going from shouting the praise of Jesus, seeing him come in on the donkey, everyone praising him, and all of a sudden you look at him and he's just weeping. It's like, whoa. it's a little bit of shift in, in tone of the time, right? Like, wait a second. We were just praising and screaming and now you're just crushed and weeping. What is happening here? This is probably... Uh, for myself and the study, the most personally convicting of this entire passage for me was reading through this and realizing that this is the heart that God wants his people to have for all people in this world who are yet to know Christ. He's coming to a city of lost people and he's weeping. He's weeping over the foolishness of their sin. He's broken because they refuse to turn back to him and find life and peace. He's crushed. And he knows there's going to be consequences. And I just found myself asking, man, when is the last time I wept even over a lost family member or friend who I dearly love? Let alone weeping over a city let alone thinking of the 80-some thousand people in Loveland, Colorado, and how probably 80 to 85% of them do not claim to have the hope of Christ. When's the last time that just broke my heart? And I'm just going to be honest. Like, I have heart defects, church. I have not been broken over the lostness and the reality of our city. And I wanted just to stop and to pray right now for all of us, for all of our hearts, that we would have this perspective. Because, gosh, it's just easy to live life. Just easy to get caught up in your own world and forget the eternal reality of what is going on in people around us. So would you bow and pray with me in this moment that we would have the heart of Jesus?
Father, I'm just going to confess for myself before you that I lack your perspective. God, I know that I should be broken, but I confess that I'm often not. And Father, I just pray that by your grace and through the power of your spirit, you would allow us as a church family to experience the weight of the reality of people who are far from you. People that have no clue about the hope and life that we declare through song together. And so God, would you break us? Would you break me? Would you bring us to a place that we don't just cry over the realities of this world, but God, we take action. That we move towards those around us with the hope of the gospel. God, we need your help because we are so easily distracted. So I just pray. I just pray for your heart in this. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, that's the, the point in your notes there. The middle point is is that we should be weeping over wayward people. We should be broken over that which breaks our Savior's heart. And yet I love that uh, this doesn't uh, immobilize or hinder Jesus, but that he keeps pressing forward to accomplish the way of peace and the way of salvation for the people he came to save. And we see him in the last part of our chapter today, proclaiming the way of peace. Verse 45 As he entered the temple, which is the very heart of the city, and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words." The temple was made to be the central place to God's people, a place where they would come and they would worship, a place of prayer, a place to sit under the teaching of God's word, a place to be distracted from all uh, the, the things in this world, to focus on God. And the temple at this moment had time had become a place of commerce. They turned it into a place of business and Jesus' actions and words come forth as a display of righteous indignation. He's furious, but he's not in sin. He is rightly mad at what is taking place here. And so he physically goes and he drives out those who are selling and doing business in the temple and he declares to them, my house was intended for prayer. And yet you've made it a den of robbers. The authorities and the leaders who were entrusted to operate and oversee this temple to ensure that it was a place of worship and connection with God were now stealing from the people. The very people who were coming to worship God. They were doing it in multiple ways. They were overcharging for participation in worship. They had an exchange rate. Uh, with money that was completely unfair and it was all for the sake of padding their own pockets. And Jesus comes and the first thing he does is he calls them out and he cleans house. And he quotes from Isaiah 56, 
Again, declaring and emphasizing that his house is intended to be a house of prayer. Isaiah 56, 6 through 8. It says, And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister him, to love his, the name of the Lord, and to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. So this is one of those passages where we clearly see salvation was intended to go forth to people of all nations. Jesus didn't just come to save the Jews, but salvation would flow from Jerusalem to the world. And those entrusted to steward God's holy place have made it a place of corruption. And Jesus has and will have none of it. I believe there's an important insight here for us when it comes to this idea of peace. Because I think sometimes we just think about like holding hands, sitting around a campfire type peace. Right? And I love campfires and I love singing songs and holding hands around them. But... In this passage, I think it is very clear that you cannot have peace without justice. Peace does not exist apart from justice. If justice does not reign, there will be no peace. And Jesus in this moment is justly ending the temple corruption, even though it's just for a short period of time. And he's restoring it to its intended purpose, which is a peaceful connection with God. And we see the chief priests and the scribes that said they were seeking to destroy him in verse 47. They didn't like what Jesus was doing, interrupting their business. But we learn they couldn't do anything about it. Why? Because at the end of verse 48, it says, All the people were hanging on his words. The masses have gathered in the temple. Jesus is teaching and they can't help just be enthralled. So for these leaders to step in and to try to stop Jesus, they're going to cause a riot. They're going to be shut down because the crowds are like, no, 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 no. We want to hear what this guy has to say. There's words of life here. There's words of hope here. He is saying things that we want to hear. They were finding peace through the words Jesus was proclaiming to them. And you all know this very well. We live in a busy and hectic world. We live in a world that is non-stop, filled with anxiety. And I believe that people, including ourselves, are in desperate search of peace. We like finding our happy place, don't we? And I've talked to multiple people, believers and unbelievers, who say, gosh, like, I just have to escape to the mountains. I just have to get out of the city and get alone out there. And it's so interesting because even for people who don't know or follow Jesus, there is something about being out in the midst of God's creation and feeling small but having quiet that makes you realize, like, oh, I can breathe here. Oh, I can think here. Oh, I'm not distracted here because there's no cell phone service 
in some places. <laughs> Talk to anyone. And they'll tell you that that's a peaceful place. People love going and feeling small and being by themselves. <laughs> because the noise of this world is so just bearing down on us all the time. And it can crush our spirits if we aren't careful. But here's the thing, the peace I believe most people are looking to find temporarily when they go out into creation can only really be found in the Creator Himself. Sure, we get a glimpse of the Creator when we're out in creation, but we don't connect with the Creator in the way He made us to connect with Him through His Son. And the only place any human soul is going to find peace that lasts is when they see the extended hand of Jesus Christ that says, be reconciled to God. Find peace with your maker. I made the way for peace. And if you're here this morning and you don't know that peace, I want to challenge you to behold the King of Peace. To set your eyes upon Jesus, though he is God and King and Lord. He is willfully going into this city to lay down his life for the sins of mankind that separated us, that disrupted our peace with God. And he did that out of love for us so that we could be reconnected with him and find the life and peace that can only be found in him. And the Bible makes this very clear, Romans 10, 9, that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That is a promise from the mouth of God. Confess your sin, look to Christ, you will be saved. And Romans 5, 1 says this, Therefore, since we have been justified or made right by faith in Christ, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Faith alone in Christ alone brings salvation and peace to the human soul. And so I charge you, receive Christ and find peace. There's no other place. And I know for many of us who are gathered here today who would say, I have peace with God. I have faith in the gospel. I, I trust. I, I've, I've received this as my own. The calling for us is to continue to pursue his peace. Because even if you found peace in an eternal sense, you still know that that's, that's hard to stay in that place. It's a battle to continue to trust Jesus as Lord, to continue to keep our hearts in a peaceful posture as we get hit by the waves of life day after day after day. But here's what God would instruct us in, in Philippians 4, 6 through 7. It says, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And check this out. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding. That's beyond your ability to understand. We got that? We got you don't need to understand it. It surpasses your understanding. And this peace of God is so powerful that it can guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus even when you don't understand. 
But what's the instruction on the front end of that passage? It's not just, don't be anxious. <laughs> like, oh, thanks, that's helpful. Like, just stop. That doesn't work. <laughs> but what does it say? But in everything by prayer. Isn't it interesting? We just heard Jesus say, my house shall be called a house of prayer. Meaning, my people who live in my house, who are a part of my household, will be a people of prayer. And the way we fight for peace, and maybe it sounds overly simplistic, but it's not, is to continue to come before the throne room of grace, to get on our knees before our maker, to come before our king, to share our honest hearts and feelings and wrestlings, and to say, God, give me this peace because I don't have it. On my own, I won't keep my heart at peace. I need you. I need you to day by day take the burdens of this life off of me and allow me to find this peace that you promise to your people. The daily path of the Christian and the only way to regular peace is through prayer. And I don't know about you, but that's a little bit of a gut check for me. <laughs> I like to solve problems. I like to take action. My default isn't, oh, pray first, <laughs> get peace, and then seek guidance. <laughs> it's, how can I fix this? Oh, I should have prayed about that. Anyone relate to me in that? A couple people? Maybe everyone in the room? But here we're told, bring everything in prayer before God. And that is where his peace will guard our minds and hearts. That's a promise. And so again, I want to land the plane where we started and that when we are seeing Jesus rightly, when we acknowledge that he is king, when we say, okay, God, you are Lord of all. I do believe you know what you're doing. Therefore, I can submit to your plan, even if I don't like it, even if it's hard. I can come under your authority because you are the rightful king. And now I'm going to seek your peace. I'm going to I'm going to come and pray. There's a combination there. It's acknowledging he's king but approaching him as the king. We have direct access to the king of kings through prayer. And it's only when we come before him that we're going to find the peace that our souls are so desperately longing for. The gospel message is the message that the king of peace came and forged the path of peace through his own life, death, and resurrection. And what I'd like to do this morning instead of communion is for us to acknowledge corporately that God's house is a house of prayer. And I want to encourage every person here to close your eyes, bow your head, spend a moment. You could pray with your spouse if you want or if you just want to pray by yourself. And do what we've been instructed to do. To cast our anxieties upon the Lord. To ask Him to give us this peace. And so whatever's going on in your mind and heart, whatever God is stirring within you, I just want to ask you to lay it at His feet. To talk to Him honestly. 
and then we will respond in a few minutes through praising our King.